Welcome to a special interview episode of Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Tamanini. On today's episode, I'm in conversation with veteran Broadway stage manager Richard Hester. Richard spent many, many years working on various productions of Jersey Boys, both as the original stage manager and as a production supervisor. He is currently working on the new Karate Kid musical in St. Louis, which Jennifer McHugh and I will be talking about a little bit more in depth on tomorrow's episode of This Week in Theater. But I wanted to talk to Richard about something different for today's episode, his new memoir, Hold Please, Stage Managing a Pandemic. Throughout the first year of the Broadway shutdown, as is the want of a stage manager in his very habitual way, Richard organized his thoughts and began sharing them on social media. He contextualized what was happening, providing perspective through both a historical and theatrical lens. Richard then took all of those social media posts and put them into a book that is incredibly insightful and interesting as a way to look back at truly one of the most harrowing years in recent memory. We will have a link in the show notes to where you can purchase Hold Please, Stage Managing a Pandemic, or tickets to see Karate Kid the Musical in St. Louis. But without further ado, here's my conversation with Richard Hester. Well, Richard, I we were talking about this before we started recording, so we might as well start here. You mentioned that fairly early on in the process of chronicling what was happening in the spring of 2020, uh, you realized that at some point we might all get bored because it was going to be a whole two weeks that everything was going to be shut <laughs> down. Um, how did that kind of realization that one, oh, I probably haven't not worked for this long in a long period of time, but then also as you started to realize, oh, this is going to be a lot longer than I thought. How did how did that kind of play into the process of you writing these entries and chronicling that year, um, both for you personally and professionally? Well, when I started writing, it was I started writing on the very first day of the lockdown, purely as a response to what I saw going on on my social media feeds. Everybody was losing their minds and everybody was terrified. And there were some things that people were posting seemed to have a ring of truth. And some things were just like, you know, aliens are landing. And the, the I started what I started doing was writing them down really for me more than almost anything else to kind of say, OK, this is what I think is going on. This doesn't make any sense, so I don't think this is true. And this seems rational. This doesn't seem rational. And I just basically took all of this disparate information and tried to make an orderly thing of it. And I posted it, um, p- partially to get some of my friends who were really losing their minds to <laughs> get them back a bit. <laughs> and and then I, I, I just sort of kept doing it. And I didn't realize that I was doing it every day. I was, it, it, it sort of just started happening. Uh, Rick Ellis, who wrote the foreword mm-hmm. at one point said to me, when did you realize, Oh no, I have to write every single day. And this was at about a hundred or 150. And I said, Oh, back at about 30. <laughs> yeah. Once you get to that number, it's almost uh, become something that everybody's expecting and you have to do it either for them or for yourself. But I, I wonder, you know, because 
there is a decent overlap into what you do um, for work with kind of chronicling these things and writing things down and making sure that there is some sort of organization to what is happening, you know, mostly chaotically around you. When you started to do this, and maybe not at first, when you were, you know, just trying to calm down your frantic friends who had their hair on fire, <laughs> but when it started to become a thing that you were doing conscientiously moving forward, how much of that was perhaps a need on a personal level and an emotional level to either heal or cope with what was going on? And how much of it was to fill a hole that was left in what is normally a very organized and regimented professional life um, that you were probably doing without, at least recently, for the longest time that you had in many, many years? True. Well, honestly, it's a bit of both. I Part of it was me needing a job. And so <laughs> I made a job. That was my job. I, I woke up every morning. I you know, got a glass of water. I went into the living room. I wrote for about three or four hours. And then I was finished and I posted and we then had our first meal of the day and then we went on with the day and then I would go for a walk. And it just sort of gave me some um, some structure to an otherwise shapeless existence. And the I, I'm, I, I look back now and I realize what I was was a workaholic. And I was yeah. really just, I mean, I was working as the supervisor of Jersey Boys and it was a 24-7 job. And part of what I ended up doing through the writing was coming to terms with the fact that I don't need to be on that hamster wheel anymore. And it's interesting now because uh, we're about to start working on rehearsals for a brand new musical based on The Karate Kid, mm -hmm. and which, which has the potential um, just from name recognition. And it's actually, we've been working on it for two or three years, and it's a beautiful piece. And, and so I think it has the potential for being another big show that that will have multiple companies. I, I it, You know, it could just die a miserable of death course, but, but but and i'm and i'm looking at going into it in a very different headspace from where i was when i went into jersey boys in jersey boys i wanted all of it and in karate kid i'm i'm being much more i think uh, I, i'm sharing the work more than i did with jersey boys so for me the writing ultimately got me to a place where if I'm being honest with myself, I probably needed to get to anyway. But you know, the whole golden handcuffs thing—the yeah. the, it, it, the hardest thing in the world is to leave something successful. And it was truly the best decision I think I've made in two years. Was to actually—I I had such a spectacular experience working on Jersey Boys, and there's so much, uh, so many bucket list items got checked off. Um, that I, I really kind of can't quite believe it, but it had gotten to the exactly to the point where anything I did on Jersey Boys moving forward would be a repeat of something I'd already done. Yeah. And so it really was time to sort of end it. Yeah, we've uh, actually just a side note, we've talked with both Drew and Keone and Mari about Karate Kid here on Broadway Radio. So we're all very excited about that show. And I'm, I, I'm very excited that you're a part of it as well. But you talking about this kind of change in your workaholic nature, um, that's been something that we've seen from folks across the world uh, coming out of this pandemic with the great resignation and people trying to find things that feed them both personally and professionally. But that really kind of draws in 
to comparison, something that I was going to talk about later in the interview, but I'll, I'll do it here. The last entry, which happened in June of 2021, I believe, so only about halfway through the pandemic in terms of as we are now, but you talk about the need um, to work and the need to work both either from a financial standpoint and then a personal standpoint and how you were kind of reminded of that from a creative standpoint, having seen a woman dancing in the rain. It was kind of this really lovely story as a way to encapsulate um, the past year that you've been writing about. How do you kind of balance those things where you're like, I need to work. I want to work. I want to be creative. I want to create things. But there has to be that joy in doing it and the joy in living that maybe you'd been sacrificing in the years and decades leading up to the shutdown in 2020. Absolutely. Well, I, I realized that my job for two years was writing a book. And I'm not under any illusion that I'm going to make money off the book. While I you know, had very little idea of how to write a book to, when I started, <laughs> I had even less idea of what happens after you've written the book. And so that's been a really learning journey for me as well. And I'm, and I'm choosing to look at the whole process of selling a book and getting it noticed as a learning experience as well, rather than having the angst of having to make money for it. I, I am within spitting distance of retirement, but not there yet. And so I look at the work that I'm about to do, and I, if I'm not going to be excited about it, I'm not going to do it. The, the, and that, and sort of full stop period. And so I, the, do, writing this book, I realized was as much of a job as working on Jersey Boys. One got me an apartment on the Upper West Side, one maybe not so much. But they were they were equally creative. And when Jersey Boys started, that joy of creation was there. And I found it again with the writing. And the a, a, a very good friend of mine has a mother who's an art dealer and who's who's very sort of supportive of everybody sort of following their bliss. And her the thing that she said, and this was 30 years ago, she said, do what you love and the money will follow. And I don't know that the money will follow in terms of the book, but the money will follow in terms of the opportunities that the book will present to me. Sure. Uh, I, I'm sure of that. I have all, I've never really gone af, gotten anything that I've gone after directly. But if I leave myself open, I always find that there's some opportunity that maybe seems weird and strange, but if it, if I'm, calm with myself and I and it it strikes me in the heart then I know it's right and you know knock wood the universe has been pretty consistent with what it's thrown in my path yeah that's great I mean I think that's a great lesson for anybody let alone if they're in the arts or, or not just being open to opportunities that might not be on the exact career path that you laid out when you were an 18 year old but things that are exciting in the moment and and make sense for where you are at whatever point in your life those can be some of the best opportunities that you might never have envisioned ahead of time but might lead to some of the the best parts of your life so i i fully agree with you there what what's interesting about this is that you you, know, you kind of talk about this as 
a creative process that mirrors some of the things that you've done on the theatrical side of your career. And throughout the book, you were able to find a lot of, you know, really compelling connections between what you saw both from um, the COVID perspective and then also the the civil rights m- movements that were going on um, as the pandemic and as 2020 and 2021 progressed. And then connecting them to theater, uh, because that is where your life uh, had been for so long. And I assume many of the readers uh, of the uh, of the book, you know, are also very passionate about theater. Was there a theatrical connection either in terms of like something you learned from a show or um, something in terms of how things worked that really resonated with you throughout this year or the year that's in the book? Well, you know, I've spent nearly 40 years working in theater. And so everything in my life, whether I like it or not, gets filtered through that prism. Sure. I, I, you know, it's it's the, I look at things as rehearsal and tech and performance or pre-production on something. And, you know, the book was no, was definitely followed that. And I, I think that sort of look, looking at what was unfolding in front of us. One of the things, uh, uh, Peter Lawrence, who uh, is a, a very established Broadway stage manager, worked a lot with Mike Nichols and people like that, and has written a wonderful book about stage management himself. The, the Peter Lawrence, at one point, I was doing a show and I was fretting about, oh, uh, how are we ever going to get there? And Peter said to me, uh, he said, no matter... Stop worrying about it, because no matter how traumatic and difficult it is, at some point, it's going to be the day after opening night, and you will have gotten there. And that is something I think I learned that a decade ago, at least. And that's something that I think I knew we were going to get through the pandemic. They got through the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. I knew we were going to get through it. I knew that we were not all going to starve to death. And, and honestly, I have to preface that by saying uh, uh, people in my community. Uh, I, I know this, sure. this, this hit so many people in so many different ways. Some people were utterly devastated by it. So I, I am going to cop to being completely privileged and, uh, and in a position that the government funding I, I knew was going to come. There, there was no way that our economy was not g- was going to be able to move forward without us being subsidized. Subsidized, And so it, it somehow I was able to then to watch what was going on and see it happen rather than be terrified of, oh my goodness, is it going to actually happen? Yeah, I think that's a, a great way. I think we so we get so far down in the weeds with whether that's the craziness happening in the world around us or in the middle of producing a show that it, it's very easy to not see the forest through the trees and that we will get there and and we just have to kind of keep moving forward. And I think that's a, a great analogy for what we've had to do for the for the pandemic. We, I kind of mentioned, though, what started out kind of as you trying to diffuse a lot of the hysteria around the early days of the pandemic fairly quickly, you know, morphed into also being about protests and 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 killings of innocent black people and and marches and movements surrounding that. As you started to kind of balance writing about those two simultaneous pandemics, 
What overlaps did you see about not only how they were interacting with each other, but how you were reacting to both of them, either individually or collectively? Well, it, just structurally, it was an extremely interesting year. It, and it divided itself very naturally into three-month chunks. Mm-hmm. So it started in March. In May, George Floyd was murdered. Go three months forward, we start the ramp up to the election. We then have three months of, of post-election. So th- th- it was, there were these cycles of national trauma. And I, I remember in the 2016 election, Susan Sarandon came under all this criticism for voting for Bernie Sanders and splintering the Democratic Party so that it allowed Trump to win. And her response was, if Trump wins, it'll um, create everything will burn down. It'll create a new beginning. And I never bought that. And we, what we experienced over the course of 2020 and 2021 was several burning downs. And they didn't create new beginnings. They morphed what was already there, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. And I would like to think that Where the overlap for me, I think, came was that all of it, the the pandemic itself allowed all of these other things that that were already there. George Floyd just happened to be the straw that broke the camel's back at that particular moment. But there had been plenty of others before and plenty since. It just happened to be the trigger. And likewise, the election was a trigger for the divide in the country. The pandemic and us being off our hamster wheels allowed us to really look at it and to really think about it. And to, and a lot of people didn't want to look at it or think about it. And so, again, it sort of goes back to what I was trying to write about, saying it's much better to look at this. And I can I can give you some bullet points for, for what you're looking at here. So you don't have to look at the news every day the way I am, but it's important to look at this and we have the time to look at it. So we should. So in a lot of ways, the pandemic allowed some of that exploration to happen. Yeah. That, that's a really, a really good perspective uh, to, to have on what was easily one of the most trying years uh, of of anybody's life, and then it hasn't seemed to get much better, uh, at least in some ways since, unfortunately. But you you mentioned um, Rick Ellis, and you talk about I think it's in the afterward how you kind of ran into him, and you tell that story that you mentioned earlier. Um, Rick is obviously no stranger to writing a theatrical memoir. Uh, I actually have his about. Um, his late husband, Roger, on my bookshelf right now. I can see it. Um, when I assume you asked him to write the foreword, why was he the right person to to do this? Obviously, your friends, he's written a book like this. You work together on Jersey Boys. But, but why was he the right person to kind of be the bookend on the on the front of this uh, front of this project? The, the I knew that he was reading what I was writing. And he was he was he would text me and he would say, you know, that one was good or or 
whatever. And, um, and so we had been in contact and he's the best writer I know uh, in terms of my inner circle of friends. And I, I, it was, I didn't, literally didn't think about it for a second. I'm like, well, of course it should be Rick who writes the, the foreword. And I knew he'd be funny. And, uh, and, uh, you know, dare I say, I knew he'd be complimentary. So the- <laughs> oh, that's a positive too, for the beginning of your book. You don't want someone who's not going to be complimentary to you. Exactly. <laughs> so that the, and the, the, the people that I got to, that I reached out to several people, it, one of the weird things about this is that it is all of the sort of self-promotion thing is very far outside of my comfort zone. Uh, I, I am behind the scenes for a reason. And so the I, I've worked with both Bernadette Peters and Patty Lapone for 20 years each. And the, the uh, in some ways, it felt a little bit like this is the first thing I was asking them to do. And I was nervous about asking them. And of course, they both sort of said yes right away, yeah. um, which was which was lovely. Um, and and I just sort of got a little emboldened by that, and you know, just started asking people if they would do it. And and I, I'm I'm still somewhat amazed at how uncomfortable it was for me to do that. And even asking Rick to do it was I was like, is this a stupid thing to ask? And I, I, I think, I, I think. I mean, you'd have to ask all of them, but I think everybody was actually, you know, happy to do it, and you know, kind of honored that I thought of them. But it, it, it was kind of like, well, of course, I'm going to ask you. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it, it it makes sense, and I know you direct a lot of things um, with Patty, whether it's, uh, you know, on the road or concerts or whatever. And, and you are one of the co-founders of Broadway Barks uh, as well. So working with Bernadette makes a makes a ton of sense there. But I I wonder that, you know, that experience of putting yourself a little bit more forward and kind of coupled with the things you've learned about how you want to approach your professional life. Have those things changed how you are doing the job with Karate Kid than maybe you had done with Jersey Boys or anything else before the pandemic? Interestingly, with the writing, every once in a while, I would write something that was really personal. And I would think, oof, do I really want that out there? And and I just kind of hit send. And the things that I thought, I, like everyone's going to think that's just indulgent and ridiculous. And in fact, the response for the ones that were personal was infinitely greater than the, I mean, I was kind of charting the daily response in terms of likes and people's comments and stuff like that. And as I went on, I grew braver about actually writing about who I was. And you know, Michael, my husband, actually who's an actor, I mean, that's what he does is put himself out there, is somewhat gobsmacked, I think, by the fact that I'm putting myself out there um, in terms of that. Because while Michael puts himself out there, he doesn't necessarily put himself out there personally. He puts himself out there inhabiting somebody else. And I'm just sort of like, sorry, this is me. Um, So the, you know, early days, we don't start rehearsals till next week, but I feel like I'm going into Karate Kid much more relaxed. Hmm. I, I I know we're going to get through it. We're we're working at Stages St. Louis, which is 
uh, this is a big show for them, and I think it's a new experience for them. They have a brand new state-of-the-art performing arts facility, and I think we are going to uh, enlarge their envelope quite a bit. Um, they're already looking at us like, I'm sorry, you want to do what? Um, <laughs> and and I'm kind of looking at that, whereas maybe in the past I would have gone into that with some anxiety. Now I'm looking like, we're going to get there. We're going to figure it out. We're going, we're going to work with Stages St. Louis in the way that they know how to do it, but we're going to push them a little further than maybe they're expecting. Um, but they're, it's, we're their guests. So we're, we're going to, we're going to end up with a product at the end that both of us will be happy with. And I think the, I, you know, the, the already in the last two weeks in, in terms of working things out there, there've been, you know, discussions and glitches and Michael, who's going to be the associate director, I think, you know, sometimes gets a little bit more animated about it. And I keep saying it will work out. We will figure it out. The, 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 it's 10 o'clock at night. You can stop thinking about it until tomorrow morning. And, and in fact, if you stop thinking about it, that's when the answer is going to come. So let it alone and let's have dinner. <laughs> That's easier said than done, though, I imagine, for folks like you who have been working in the the business for as long as you both have. Um, uh, but it's interesting. I you, And this is very little, uh, you know, a very small thing. But you mentioned that you were kind of tracking the social media interactions and the likes and, and all of those things uh, with the posts. That just seems like such a stage manager-y thing to do uh, <laughs> to me that, uh, that that fits. I mean, it just it, – what I loved about the book is that it did read like – you know, in in some ways, especially early on, but as you said, you kind of got a little bit more personal as you went on. But early on, it, it felt kind of like the report from you know that day's production. Um, and Absolutely, it, yeah, it it felt very natural to who you are uh, and what you've done for for so long in your career. But um, I, I think it's wonderful. It's 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 such an and I mentioned this beforehand. It's such an interesting way to look back at the pandemic, at least the first year of the pandemic when. Uh, to me, it feels like it was a lifetime ago and then also a week ago and, and to kind of go through and to think about all of the hysteria that surrounded those early days and confusion and uncertainty to have this look, uh, and this insight is, is really kind of a wonderful thing. And to have it from a theatrical perspective is even better for someone like, like me. And I'm sure everybody listening and everybody reading. So, um, Richard, thank you so much for talking about this. Um, I, I, I hope that everybody goes out and gets the book. And then of course, um, sees the Karate Kid both at Stage of St. Louis and hopefully in all of the multiple different productions that you are going to oversee for years and years to come. Absolutely. I, 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 it, it was such a pleasure talking to you today. I, I hope that everybody who reads this um, can find the part of what that happened over the last two years that was growth and that made them feel good because we all know there was plenty out there that wasn't. And my hope with this is that some good comes from it. And I hope for everybody listening that some good comes for them as well. 